Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and we are preaching a two-part mini-series, two-part Christmas mini-series entitled, A Vision of God, A Vision of God. And last week we preached from Isaiah 6, Jose Prado preached from Isaiah 6, God on the throne above us, holy, 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 is what the seraphim said as they worshipped God on the throne. And Isaiah had that vision of God. And this week, I have the privilege of preaching a vision of God, God in the manger, God with us, God in the manger, God with us. And I'd like you to simply read, I'm going to read one verse here from this passage. Isaiah 9 verse 2 is what I'm going to read before we pray. We will be expositing or teaching from verses 1 to 7, but I just want to read this verse because I believe this verse carries the weight of God's burden for us this morning. And here it is, Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your light would shine upon each heart this morning. The hearts that are closed and darkened to your truths will be opened and enlightened by your word and your spirit this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak how you want this word to be spoken, what to say and how to say it. And we trust you and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. It was just after midnight on Wednesday, October the 13th, when the first of 33 trapped Chilean miners emerged from his subterranean tomb. I watched transfixed, as did much of the rest of the world, wondering what it must have been like to be trapped one half mile beneath the surface of the earth for over two months. Well, a Newsweek article described what it was like. And quoting from that article, the plight of the 33 miners in northern Chile since August the 5th is harrowing enough. To survive, they must endure constant 90% humidity, avoid starvation, battle thirst, guard against fungus and bacteria, and stay sane enough to safely do the work necessary to aid in their rescue. Yet, even if they accomplish all that, they face another danger. And what is that danger? Constant darkness. Decades of research has shown that the human body is built to function on the rhythm of the rising and the setting of the sun. If sunlight doesn't tell our brains when we should be asleep, and if we don't eat, exercise, and sleep on a fairly regular daily schedule, humans can develop all sorts of health problems over time, from irregular metabolism to heart disease to deficiencies of key vitamins. You want to know what it was like for those Chilean miners? It was dark. Darkness was what it was like. And a lack of hope. In fact, there was no hope for them. They lacked the proper sunlight. They lacked the proper nourishment. They even lacked water. They were hopeless until a three-inch supply line was cut down to them. This supply line became the focus of their hope. And as through it came all that they needed to survive the darkness. What if everything you needed to survive had to fit through this space right here? 
here is what passed through this space to them to keep them alive. You ready for a list? 2,000 calorie diet of full energy nutrition bars and foods like bread, ham, and kiwis. Five liters of bottled water per miner per day. Aluminum poles and canvas to assemble cots. Toothbrushes, toothpaste, razors. Waterproof shoes and lightweight clothing with copper fibers. 33 mini Bibles. An iPod. Headlamp batteries. Vitamin D supplements. They needed 250 times the usual daily dose to combat the lack of sunlight. Syringes for tetanus shots, diphtheria, influenza, and pneumonia vaccinations. Blood and urine samples were sent back and forth through that little slot. A camera and phone line to speak to family, rescue workers. Soccer jerseys autographed by Chile's national soccer team. A mini projector and fiber optic line to show sports and movies and a 50-inch picture on the cave wall. All of that passed through this. Actually, there were two or three of them eventually, through that little hole right there. So, today's message, friends, today's message is for us a three-inch line of supply to enable us to survive the darkness of the fallen world around us, the darkness of Satan and his demons that would love to destroy us, and most of all, the darkness of our own sinful flesh and desires and the things that enslave us. You see, we're those miners trapped below the surface of the earth in darkness, and our only hope is God and his word. His word is that three-inch supply line. And just like the, mon- the miners monitored that supply line 24 hours a day, so must we. So this morning, we're monitoring it. We're reading it. And what is it telling us? It is telling us that God's burden for us this morning is that we would hope in him. If you have notes, the key point of this message is hope in God. Why? Because he would surely save us from our darkness. He will surely save us from our darkness. Now, let's take a look at this hope in God. The first point of the message is the focus of your hope, verses 1 to 5. And the second point of the message is the object of your trust, because hope leads to trust. So let's start with the focus of your hope. Let's drop down into this supply line, shall we? Let's receive some nourishment from it, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 9. What is the focus of your hope? Well, here it's described for us in verse 1 of Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his sh- for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For the Chilean miners, the focus of their hope was that three-inch supply line. 
For God's people, in this passage, the focus of their hope was this prophetic word that we just read. Into the darkness of the nation of Israel in about 733 BC, drops in, God drops in this three-inch supply line of hope. The focus of their hope and your hope is what God has done and will do to save you from your darkness. This is what verse 1 talks about. It talks about a people in gloom. Look at these, look at these adjectives here. There will be no gloom, anguish, contempt. Do you see that in verse 1? This verse is describing a people, Zebulun and Naphtali, living in the northern part of Israel, the, the northern ten tribes of Israel, who were actually at this time in rebellion to God. And God was getting ready to judge them by sending a kingdom called Assyria, that would destroy their cities and take them all captive into exile, never to return. So into that darkness, God drops in some light. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, that's describing these people, have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. See, God, in verse 2, will cause these people who walk in darkness to see a great light. It's God doing it. He will shine a light on them. The grammar here is in the past tense, but it is something called a prophetic past tense. What that means is it's actually prophesying of a time to come, but it's a time to come that is so certain that Isaiah is speaking of it as if it has already happened. It's the prophetic past tense. Their hope was this great light that God would bring to them. This light that God would shine on them. And it's our hope as well. You see, friends, your hope is on the great light God has shined on you. And that great light is Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. Look at John chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. John chapter 1. Verses 4 to 9, describing Jesus, says the following. John 1, verses 4 to 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I love that. I don't care how dark your darkness is right now. Jesus overcomes your darkness. That's really good news, because I know some of you are in some serious darkness. Jesus overcomes that darkness. Look at this. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, verse 9, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. This is the light that Isaiah is speaking of in a prophetic past tense in Isaiah 9. To a people walking in darkness, about to be judged. But God says, I am going to bring a great light. Do you see the contrast here? Did you note the contrast in John 1? Light overcomes darkness. People in great darkness receive a great light. Go back to Isaiah 9. Look at the contrast in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Not just any light. A great light. And that light comes from God. 
just like the Chilean miners could do nothing to save themselves a half mile underneath the earth, but relied on this supply line to be drilled down to them, so we can do nothing to save ourselves from our darkness, our hopelessness. But God shines a light on us. And that's what Christmas is all about, guys. Yeah, it's a time of lights. Have you ever thought about why? Because Jesus is the great light. And we celebrate him. It's not a time of darkness. It's a time of light. Oh, friends, may that contrast be in your life that when darkness comes, you would look and your hope would be focused on the light. In fact, the contrast was so great that if you, if you remember the Chilean miners, as they were ascending up, they had to be given special sunglasses because they had lived for over two months in total darkness. And they couldn't handle the light. And some of you can't handle the light. But God's going to give you special sunglasses so that you can make the transition from total darkness. And you're comfortable in darkness. You're comfortable with b- bacteria and fungus growing all over you. And God says, let me bring you into the light. And warm you up. And I'll take care of you. Because I, I am that great light. And your hope must be focused on the light. Oh, friends, this light of Christ, this great light that shines on them, shines on us. Jesus is the focus of our hope. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is the focus of our hope. Verse 3 is the result of the light coming into our lives. Now remember, he's speaking this to a people who are about to be judged, but it's the prophetic past. So remember that, okay? Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Do you get the word joy? Okay. It's there. It is definitely there. And as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Friends, the great light shines on them. And so in verse 3, this great light brings joy. What kind of joy? Look at this. It's the joy of a farmer. Do you see that? As with joy at the harvest. It's the joy of a soldier when he, con- when he conquers something. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. The last line there in verse 3. When a soldier conquers a country, he gets the spoils. He gets all the riches. It's that kind of joy. It's the joy of winning the game. Scoring the final touchdown. Jumping up and down in the end zone. Multiplied by a million. You see, the focus of our hope is on what God has done in Christ. This is the joy that God wants us to experience. He gives it to us, but listen to me. You know what this scripture says? We've got to choose to rejoice in it. Look at verse one, look at verse three again. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. That's God's sovereign work. But notice this they rejoice before you. God does the work sovereignly. We must respond and rejoice by focusing our hope on him and what he's done. See, the focus of our hope is on what God has done for us in Christ. What you focus on affects you. If you focus on the darkness, then you will descend into gloom and despair. The very things, by the way, the miners had to guard against. That was their worst enemy. But if you focus on the light, on that three-inch supply line, if you focus on what God has done for you in Christ, then, friends, you will have joy. Not a self-generated, happy, surfacey joy, but a God-generated, deep joy in the midst of your darkness. You 
will have true hope. Not a false hope in financial security, relational stability, but you'll have a true hope. A hope that extends forever in the one who is forever in what he's done. But you must choose what you will focus on. The focus of your hope is on what God has done for you in Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. They continue this theme of reminding Israel what God has done for them. Hence, reminding us to focus on what God has done for us. For Israel, this made sense. Verses 4 and 5 make sense. For us, we need a little explanation. So let me give you a little explanation. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is that talking about? Well, a good Jew would have understood the first part of that verse is talking about the rod of oppression, the staff on their shoulder, and the yoke of slavery of Egypt. Of Egypt. Remember, this is 733 B.C. 1500 or 1400 B.C. is when Israel came out of slavery from Egypt. Moses led them out. So these first part of the verse is saying, focus your hope on what I did for you. I set you free from bondage. I delivered you from Egypt. Egypt, friend, is always a picture of the world. Pharaoh was a picture of Satan. Get it coming out of Egypt is God supernaturally taking a bunch of poor people with no weapons and removing them from a nation that was the most powerful, technologically advanced nation in the world. God did it. So he's saying, focus your hope, Israel, on what I did. And then the second part of that verse, when it speaks of Midian, broken, uh, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. This is now referring to a deliverance that happened later, after the exodus, when God used a man named Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And the Midianites are a picture of our flesh, of sin that comes to oppress us. Israel had, had been disobedient to God. They had not worshipped God. So he allowed some of the enemies they had in the land to come in and enslave them and, and oppress them. And then he raised up this guy Gideon. And, and Gideon, with a very small number of men, hardly anybody at all, went out at night by God's command, and surrounded his enemies, okay? And they all had these jars, and inside the jars were candles that were lit. And at a certain time at night, maybe at midnight, God said now, and they all blew these trumpets, and they shattered the jars, and they held up the lights, and the Midianites, who were a far greater number, a far better army, were so terrorized that they ran around, and in the process, they killed each other. And God delivered his people miraculously. Both stories point to God's miraculous deliverance by his power. See, God's past deliverances are the focus of our hope. But then verse 5, our hope is focused as well on God's promise of deliverance. Some of you may be in darkness right now. You may be like those miners. Maybe you're enslaved by a sin. Maybe there's a relationship that's just gone awry. Maybe financially you're in big trouble. And God says, I will deliver you. I I will use this to form my character in you. And that's what verse 5 talks about. I will bring you peace. I'm the conqueror. Look at the metaphor here in 5. Let me read it. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, that's a tough one to interpret, right? What in the world is that talking about? Well, this military metaphor speaks of peace. 
It, it speaks of a hope of future peace because of the conquest of Christ over his enemies. It speaks of liberated people, the people of God, who then enter into the fruits of the Lord's victory. I didn't win the victory. Jesus won the victory. So the focus of my hope is on this future liberation of a present bondage that I might be struggling with. Every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned. This, this is a metaphor for breaking of the alien power that has gripped the Lord's people. Your hope, friend, is based on this promise. God's not a liar. He's true. Have hope in the liberation to come. You see, this liberating conquest, this peace described in verses 4 and 5 are made possible by the coming of the child in verse 6. The focus of your hope is what God has done for you and will do for you, and that's Christ. And as your hope grows, don't you know that then you begin to trust? So let's take a look at the object of your trust. The second point of the sermon. What is the object of our trust? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. Let's read those. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All that God has done in the Old Testament, deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from the Midianites, Gideon's work, all of it points to this Christ child. He is the object of our trust. See, here again we have this prophetic past, this, gr this grammar that's in the past tense. I mean, when you read verse 6, what do you think? Look at verse 6 again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's almost as if it just, it's happening right now. Folks, this is talking about something that will happen 730 years, 33 years later. But it's so certain that the author, God, through Isaiah, uses the past tense and saying, it's happened, he's given. It's going to happen. Notice that this child is born. He is given. Clearly the focus of our hope is on what God has done. None of us can cause this to happen. It's not on what we do or can do. It's on what God has done. Do you lack hope? Look at what God has done. Look at what God promises. See, the object of our trust is God's sovereign provision of the light, just as the miners' trust was in the provision being sent to them. They could do nothing to save themselves, nor can we. This child who is born is the son who is given. He is Christ. And the government will be upon his shoulder. See, he comes to rule. He comes to rule everything. He comes to rule us. He comes to take the government of our lives on his shoulder. Hence, hence he is the object of our trust. And as we submit to his government, then... He removes the oppression off of our shoulders. We can't rule ourselves, though we try and fail miserably. But he can. And he does come to rule us. And when he rules us, when the government of our lives is upon his shoulder, then he removes the oppression from our shoulder. 
If you persist in ruling your life, you are destined for a life of oppression and gloom and darkness and anguish. But if the child who is born, the son who is given, takes the government of your life, if you bow your knee to him and he is the Lord of your life, then upon his shoulder is the government of your life and upon your shoulder is light and joy. Even in the midst of tears and suffering. So the question is, whose shoulders are bearing the rule of your life this morning? Now, Who is this one who is the object of our trust? Well, it says there, and his name shall be called. Do you see that? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. These names that we're about to study are indicative of Christ's very nature and the nature of his rule over us. And they are in contradistinction. They are in opposition to the ungodly rule Israel was presently under with King Ahaz. Back to 733 BC, they had an ungodly king. His name was Ahaz. And he was the opposite of everything we're about to learn here that Christ is. Just like the false kings, starting with your own self, or anyone or anything else you trust other than God, are going to fail you and do fail you. They're unreliable. They're not eternal. Only Christ is this. And what is this? Well, these names are going to describe what it means for God to be with us and what it means for God to be with us and what it means for us to trust him, what it means for us to make Christ the object of our trust. And here we go. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Here we find wisdom beyond human capabilities. Wisdom you can trust. A plan that works. Christ is the wonderful counselor who comes to preserve us, friends. So trust him. Mighty God. The title of the Lord himself. God is the warrior who comes to liberate us. As he has wisdom. Listen, wisdom is good. But you have to have then the strength to implement the wisdom or wise counsel. And he has it. He's the mighty God. So trust him. Trust him. He's the everlasting father. Now what does this mean? This is not a confusion of the roles of the Trinity. This is not saying that, that Jesus is the father. No, no. This is saying that Jesus is like a father. Everlasting. A father should be a benevolent protector. King Ahaz, during that time, was not protecting Israel. He was making bad decisions, bad treaties with their enemies. Jesus is our protector. The gods and things you trust, beginning with your own counsel and self, are not going to protect you. They will expose you and use you. Jesus is a benevolent protector, like a father. He cares for the helpless and the weak. Do you find yourself in a position of helplessness like those miners? Do you find yourself in a position of weakness? Then, oh, trust Christ. He's the everlasting Father in His care and His discipline, His correction, His instruction of you. Everlasting means He will never fail. Everybody else is going to fail. He won't fail. You will be forever secure in His arms. So trust Him. And He's the Prince of Peace. Oh, friends, Prince of Peace. Listen, number one, that is speaking of peace with God. Your greatest need, 
is peace with God. Because apart from Christ, you are at war with God. That's what scripture teaches. You are God's enemy. You are the recipient of God's wrath and his, and his righteous anger. You need to sue for peace with God. You need to come to God and make peace with God. And the only one that can make peace with God is Jesus. He's the prince of peace. Corey alluded to it during the announcements. He was born to die. So that a peace could be made between unrighteous men and women, that's you and me, and righteous God. Between those in darkness and the one who is pure light. Between those that are pure sin and the one that is pure holiness. Jesus brings peace with God. And then, peace with those around you. And ultimately, one day, eternal peace and joy. No more war. This speaks of the wonderful promise of the final messianic rule when the lion and the lamb will lie down. Are you at war and tired of it? Then trust Christ, the Prince of Peace. He will bring you peace. The shalom of God that includes well-being, freedom from anxiety, at one with God because he's chosen you. Christ in us and, and we are in Christ. And then at one with those around you. That's peace, man. You can have all the money in the world, but if the home you come back to is a battlefield, you are a miserable person. You can have all the acclaim and success of the world, but if your heart is in tumult and you are fighting everybody and everything all the time and ultimately God, that's hell. Welcome to hell on earth. But Jesus comes to deliver you from that darkness. He makes peace between you and God. And gives you a peaceful heart so that my friend, who has nothing, nothing, is the richest man in the world. Manolito Fonseca. Because he knows the peace that passes all understanding. So who are you trusting or whom do you trust this morning? May you trust Christ. Why? Oh, look at the last verse. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me begin with the zeal of the Lord of hosts. This is a military term. I'm a military guy. I'm a sports guy, military guy. I like violence. I like speed. I like, I like action. I like hits. I like, I like just stuff that is going to move people and, and just come and dominate, okay? I know. I'm, I'm becoming a Christian slowly, but I like all that stuff, okay? And if it's sanctified, if it's for a good reason, if all that violence is visited on the bad guys who are doing bad things, then it's a good thing, and that's what this is. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is a military term. God is going to do this, so trust him. But even beyond that, listen, God keeps his word. That's what the whole thing about the throne of David is all about. You wonder, why is that there? I understand the increase of his government. Okay, and of peace, great. There will be no end. But what's this on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it? That means God keeps his word. Because God gave his word to David in 1000 BC that there would be someone on his throne all the time. And the problem with this is 
that, that the people that he chose, Israel, sinned a lot. And so God, in his righteousness, judged them. He's about to judge them further. But what this is saying is, I'm going to keep my promise to David because what I was looking at, what I was talking about, isn't a king like this guy Ahaz who's not doing a very good job. Or even like David who sinned against God. But the king I'm going to install, the one that I'm going to bring, is this child who will rule you. I am God, and I will keep my word. So trust me. And the increase of my kingdom... Which is, which is God's rule in the hearts of men today. It's not a physical, political kingdom. It's God's rule in your heart, in my heart today. And his son, who is the son of David, but he's also David's Lord, is ruling. And God is true. Everybody else is a liar. Everybody else is going gonna, is gonna to disappoint you. Mark it down. If you trust and put your hope in man, you will be disappointed, Period. But you will never be disappointed in God because this verse says he's going to do it. His government's going to increase. And one day, he is going to come back. You know, I can just imagine what those miners must have felt like sitting in the darkness without hope when suddenly this three-inch supply line emerges and begins to supply them with what they need. The three-inch supply line became the focus of their hope. But, oh, friends, the object of their trust arrived on August or October the 12th. The object of their trust was the rescue capsule that was born through a huge shaft. And that rescue capsule for those miners was the object of their trust. They, They had to trust that thing. The first guy that got into it had to trust that he was going to be clamped up in this little capsule and go through the shaft that was pitch black for about 20 minutes. I don't know about you, but you know MRIs are tough enough for me. But he had to put his trust in that capsule because let me tell you something. Jesus, as you can imagine, is the rescue capsule. The line of supply is the prophetic word. 733 years later, the capsule arrives. But the capsule is no good for the person who does not trust in the capsule and get into the capsule and close that gate and put the sunglasses on and go up. You've got to get in. He is Lord, not you. And you must trust him like those miners had to trust you. Jesus is the great light, friends. And he's calling you and me to trust him. Will you Trust him. I want to leave you with one more vision of God. Okay? This God who sent his son, and this son who came to this earth, will come back. And there's a vision of him, of this Christ child, in heaven that's a little bit different from what we're reading this morning. And this vision... This vision, this vision is of a lamb that was slain. This vision is, is of God's throne. This vision is of, of the heavenly beings crying, holy, holy, holy. Only it's no longer Isaiah seeing it in 733 BC. It's now prophetic. It's what's going to happen on the last day. It hasn't happened yet. Now it's happening right now, but the final day hasn't happened yet. And I want you to look at this vision. And I want you to consider carefully this rescue capsule. And I want you to consider carefully this light that has come, this great light, Jesus. 
So I want you to go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And I want to leave you with a biblical vision of God. Yes, he is holy, holy, holy. Yes, he is the one that put the coal on Isaiah's lips. Yes, he's the baby in the manger. I don't understand that, but he is. He's God in the manger. Yes, he's the wonderful counselor. Yes, he's the mighty God. Yes, he's the everlasting father. Yes, he's the prince of peace. But friends, he came to die. He's he's this lamb of God. He's this holy one. So if you look at Revelation chapter 4, look at verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 to 11 says the following. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they They existed and were created. And let's take another look at God. Let's get another vision of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Who is this Lamb? This is Jesus. This is the light. This is the one who's come to die for us. This is the one who is spoken of in Philippians, a book of the New Testament, written 700 and some years later after Isaiah, where the Apostle Paul, by revelation from God, says, this is the one who was in heaven, but he didn't count that privilege as something that he was going to just grasp, but he laid down the privilege of being God in heaven, and he came down to earth, and he humbled himself to become a man. And then he humbled himself further to be a servant. And he humbled himself further to be obedient. And it says to be obedient unto death, death on a cross. Hence, the Bible calls him the Lamb of God. This is the sacrifice that that had to be made for the sins of the people. The Jews did it with a lamb. Jesus came to fulfill that image. He's the Lamb of God. Got it? Okay, that's who's being spoken of here. So back to the text. In chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. He was killed for us. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. This is the light that came to us. And you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What I love about Palm Vista is I think we have mostly every tribe and language and people and nation here. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And listen to what they're saying in verse 12 of of Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, you bet. You bet you must give your riches to him. (laughs) Because he's worthy. Not just your riches, your life. Get in the capsule. Trust him. He's the only one that can deliver you from the darkness. You ain't climbing up that shaft. You're getting in the capsule and it's taking you up. And then finally, 
Revelation 6, verse 12. Let me set the scene here. This lamb is the only one that can open the seals. There are seven seals. When he comes to the sixth seal in heaven, I want you to listen carefully to what's happening. Revelation 6, 12. When he opened the sixth seal, he being Jesus, the Lamb of God, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon full like blood. Notice the contrast here, black, darkness, sackcloth, blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished. So this is obviously talking about the end here. The sky vanished and all like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then, now listen, look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. I get that. And from him who is seated on the throne and from what? The wrath of the what? The lamb? Yes, the lamb. Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? I'll tell you who can stand. The one who's in that capsule. The one who is in Christ. He's your only hope. I beg you, come to him. Let us pray. Father, I pray that by your grace this morning, you would give us a vision of yourself. Father, you you have been kind to us. As the scripture says, you come and, and you kneel down and you speak, even as one theologian said, baby, talk to us so we can understand you. You, you, you. you who are clothed in splendor and majesty, to whom the angels are singing holy, holy and bowing before you, you, ding, you, you came down as a child, a baby who couldn't even talk in a manger because you love us, because you are the great light. Because this is the only capsule that will take us to your place. This is the only way of escape. And why you did it, I don't know. But thank you for doing it, for humbling yourself. And I thank you, Father, you were faithful to your promise. Because in Philippians it says, the one who humbled himself, you then would glorify. And you would raise him up, as it says in Philippians 2, and every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see it in heaven, in Revelation, and I pray we'd see it in this auditorium right now. Friend, if you're hearing my voice just with your eyes closed and praying to God, I beg you, I beg you, bow your heart and your life to the one who came as the great light to redeem you out of your darkness. You may not think you're in darkness. You may not think you need the Savior. But oh, you do, friend. You do, friend. You need him now, but you certainly will need him the day you stand before God at the great white throne judgment. What will you say to him? There's only one thing to say. I'm in Christ. And then, and then we'll worship him. So Father, I pray that you would save souls this morning. Lord, I pray that you would honor your son by adding voices to say, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, validating his plan of salvation, the great light. And Father, we join in that chorus right now as we sing to you, 
Worthy is the Lamb. Stand, please. Let's sing this song. It's called the Revelation Song. It's taken from various passages in the book of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is He.